0: Dublin.
1: Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of
0: social distancing. Hello. Could I please speak with John Freeman? I guess it is John Freeman. John, it is such a pleasure to have you on this call. Thank you so much for being part of the Quarantine Tapes, which is presented or co-presented, I should say, by Onassis LA and DubLab. Tell me, John, how have you been spending these last 13 months of this delirious period?
1: Wow. Uh, Yeah, it's been a strange time to be in one place, mostly in have your heart pulled in so many different directions. I've been about half the time here in New York where I am now, and the other half of the time in Wimbledon with my partner's family, looking after her mother who was locked down for about 15 months because she had rheumatoid arthritis and some immunity issues. And so it's, it's been a, a very strange time because I've been away from my family, but with other family. Right. and. I think we are drilling down into these deeper layers of, of love and commitment and responsibility to those around us and those close to us. And yet, simultaneously, if you have any kind of degree of, of heart, you're also reading the news and staying in touch with friends and feeling pulled in that direction, too. And I've been really lucky, and my my family's been okay. They're all in California, and, you know, except for one or two friends who, who passed a of other complications, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has been is one that I've I've survived okay. It's just been a it's been a difficult time now.
0: Speaking of loss, and we will be speaking of loss, but also in order to commemorate those people we truly love, you wrote a beautiful piece, John, tremendously um, profound. I found on Barry Lopez, which you published in Orion Magazine. Um, which I think is coming out any any moment, and thankfully I I could read it in advance, about really your friendship with Barry Lopez, a friendship to some extent I share, even though regretfully I didn't pursue the possibility of going and visiting uh, Barry Lopez after I met him at the Sun Valley Writers' Conference. He moved me so deeply, and you say something which I love. He says... He wasn't speaking to you from a perch, but a porch. And that reminded me, that kind of elective affinity, reminded me of a beautiful essay of Emerson on friendship, which he published in 1841 in the essays. And I'll read it to you, and maybe you could react to both Emerson and comment a little bit on your friendship with Barry, he says we talk sometimes of a great talent for conversation as if it were a permanent property in some individuals. Conversation is an evanescent relation, no more. Friendships require that rare mean betwixt likeness and unlikeness that peaks each with presence of power and of consent in the other party.
1: Oh, I I'm so glad to hear you read Emerson. It was uh, Emerson was one of the uh, early lights that turned me on to reading, you know, and I found so much of that light in, in Barry as a writer and as a person. Um, uh, he was essentially a seeker, you know, who was very open to other ways of seeing than his own or the ones that had been handed to him by those close to him. And one of the great things I think about Barry as a writer and as a person is, is the respect and dignity with which he treated all their ways of seeing the world other than his own. And it made him, you're right, absolutely talented at friendship because he could greet other people on their own terms. And I use that word porch to describe the way that he was, because there was an an openness. There was just such an openness to him, you know, and it, it wasn't like he was dispensing wisdom. His idea about wisdom was that it was something that passed through us, that we didn't possess or own, that we were just its conduit. And you know, one of the great kind of conductors of, of wisdom, he felt, was friendship. You know, it was the proximity of two minds in conversation, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes searching together. And I, I, I think he was so immensely gifted at, at, at creating the, the conditions for, for wisdom, um, and, and yet simultaneously always uh, eschewing the kind of worship that, that sometimes comes from being often at the lightning field of wisdom.
0: And to some extent, it's also practical. You know, when you were word, uh, using the word wisdom, I was reminded in the storyteller, Walter Benjamin, I think he says something like, counsel woven into real life is wisdom.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, wisdom is, is, is specific. It's not general. It, it, it's deeply mapped and connected to places and to the people who need it. And so you can't simply pull it off the shelf you know, like a commodity, it has to be fashioned to the moment, you know, and I think we're constantly in our chaotic moment that we're living through right now, we're searching for new forms of wisdom, you know, and and that's what's so exciting about the writing, which is emerging in poetry and and in the essay and some forms of fiction is the energy which comes from people trying to to come to grips with what wisdom will guide us now in in addressing the, the problems we face in a country that's never really truly faced its past.
0: One more moment um, on friendship and the people we we talk to and we, we share kind of elective affinities with. And I love the perch and porch, because the perch would mean from above. The porch would mean come into my home and let me talk to you. Bernard Williams, a philosopher I much admire, said we should remember that work may be unimaginative, not because it is badly argued, but because it is arguing with the wrong people. How does that resonate with you?
1: That's a big question, I think, when talking about friendship and, and Barry Lopez and the, the context of his life. One of the things that I think he struggled with was how, how much energy to dispense on fighting the broken myth which had created the conditions for our ignorance, you know, and and this is something Rebecca Solnit has also written about, you know, how much time do you spend dismantling dangerous myths to create space for better ones, for new ones, for new forms of storytelling. And I, uh, you know, I think that to me, that always points to the need for collaborative artistic and creative endeavors. You know, this is why I, I really love working with people like Barry and, Tracy K. Smith, when you are arguing with the wrong people, if it's just you doing the work, sometimes it can be overwhelming, you know, because you you feel as an artist or a writer that you have to do everything. And that's not the case. And when it comes to climate justice, when it comes to racial justice in America, when it comes to economic justice, when it comes to changing policy, that there needs to be a lot of people participating in in that kind of fight and also in the kind of artistic conversation that lends itself to being part of a fight but not defined by the fight. It, it, and when it comes to writing today, I think there, there's a lot of space right now to work collaboratively so that we don't get distracted by arguing against already failed ideas uh, of, of what it means to be an American, what it means to, to be conscious of working in a climate where the, the earth is struggling against what we've put upon it and tracy said it very yeah, well yeah um, tell me well she pointed out in her conversation with you that the problem is not blackness it's the way that people respond to blackness that's right you know and, and in that in, in her one answer she basically dispensed with what could have been a 35 minute conversation
0: <laughs> i know i know it was it was so precise and so concise um and and firm The firmness Mm. was something that I I tremendously admired. When you were talking about Barry Lopez, that he was a seeker, don't mean this as flattery, John, but that could define you. And it could define you in the sense that I have really come across someone who has such an unquenchable thirst and appetite. I mean, the, 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 the volume of books you have brought out that are collaborative and that make us discover new voices is extraordinary. And you know, in a way, uh, the Freeman's Journal that you have is is a response, an extraordinary response to the Lapham Quarterly. But it's it's quite different. And i maybe you can talk a little bit about this collaborative work you've done. Maybe even. We, we could discuss uh, the edition you've brought out with, with Tracy K. Smith. I'd love you to talk about it also in the context, really, of your, your new position, which, I, I mean, I couldn't be more excited that John Freeman has become the executive editor at Knopf.
1: Thank you. I mean, there's a lot to, to talk about there. Uh, I joined such a group of brilliant minds there. It's it's, it's a real honor to to be part of that. But in terms of being an American in this moment or being a thinker in this moment, I think Tracy, in her conversation with you, coming back to the, the health of the soul, the soul of the country, uh, and I think it is the only form of nationalism that I find interesting today, which is how to capture the kind of soul music of a country you know, how to speak to the soul in a country where the soul is sick. And I think we've reached the limit to some degree of two things: one, how we can address the many problems that face American life on the level of simply uh policy and um, non non spiritual solutions. Um, we have to go deeper if we're ever going to address what the country could become, and it has to address the spiritual problems of the country um and The second is I think you have to put a frame around debate that enlarges it, that allows it to be bigger. I've always felt that one of the problems with intellectual life in America is is this idea that the acoustics are neutral, that basically you bring people into a room and get them talking. But I think the acoustics of intellectual life are made by the people you bring into the room. The room itself is not what's de- designing the acoustics, it's the voices you bring into it. And for, for many reasons, this country has been very... Often quite bad about inviting people outside of it in, uh, or, or or defining them by their their otherness. And so when I put together Freeman's as a journal, I wanted to create a, an intellectual space that proceeded largely by narrative and the music of writing, but that was decentered. That didn't have America as its reference point. And similarly, in the in the anthology that you talked about with Tracy and that is coming out next week, there's a revolution outside my love. We wanted to quietly put together a book without saying much about the fact that you know, these are all writers of color with with one one exception. And so the the acoustics of this book are not meant to be filtered towards a kind of normative idea of whiteness so that it can be filtered back out to society. We wanted to create a different sort of music that develops when no one is, is explaining, you know, the writing on the on the level of the intimacy that you get Within a letter, perhaps, and I think in, in in our time we need many more collaborative modes if we're going to find our way out of the spiritual malaise and the problems that we find ourselves in in this country
0: added to to this volume that's coming out very soon with with Tracy K. Smith, you wrote a a book just if I am correct, John, one year before the pandemic, which i had the pleasure of reading now and discovering on a silent retreat I took. Imagine that me being on a silent retreat for four days was quite something but it was a perfect reading. Um, The book is called Dictionary of the Undoing and I find it particularly interesting because it brought to mind Raymond Williams famous book Keywords and it's it's a dictionary where you go from agitate to usurp, from body to eye, from citizen to rage, from police to anonymous, from justice to questions. And you say, this book is an attempt to build a lexicon of engagement and meaning in a time and media age that has made a mockery of those forces in our life. And I I found it fascinating to, to think of that kind of marching order And a desire to agitate our grammar in some way and the grammar of our thinking in connection with a line I've always loved of Tom Waits where he says the world is a hellish place and bad writing is destroying the quality of our suffering. So perhaps you can speak a little bit about this dictionary and how you might even update it now and which words you would want to include now after these 13 calamitous months.
1: Oh, well, I'm glad it was good company for you. I have often found, (laughs) you know, when I am most lost, obviously a, a book is the compass point. And one of the things I found particularly confusing about the last couple of years is just how much violence was being directed at language itself from very powerful positions. And even without tuning into the news, the collateral damage on language was impossible not to feel, you know, when you take out a word like love and you've heard it or overheard it being used for for such um, terrible reasons it kind of turns to ash in your hand and I found I was often in the position of reacting so much reacting to the news to explain as you pointed out just recently in your question how much time do you spend explaining the obvious when it comes to making an argument about say dignity or justice and so I I started to sort of step back every morning and think about what are the words that matter. What are the what are the concepts that are important to me? You know, and I started with with words like body and, and citizen and decency. And and as I found myself writing with no dictionary near me, with no destination in mind, I, I found that my mind felt free for the first moment in a long time when I was simply trying to define with only my own words the sort of essential meaning of these principles, and each one led to the next. And, you know, I, I if I made this this book now, I think I might have substituted fairness and chosen friendship. I think of friendship as a form of intelligence. You know, we all, I think, have relied so much upon it in the last 14 to 16 months. And it's something that's very difficult to write about in literature. I'm, I'm right right now rereading for the umpteenth time Vivian Gornick's book, The Odd Woman in the City, which is a wonderful essay, among other things, on friendship, um, on the values of friendship and on our friendship with a particular person. And it's it's so rare that you find in literature, a truly brilliant portrait of what friendship can be. But of course, all of us would be, I think, lost without it.
0: Meaningless, perhaps, you know, per- a- a- aside from the essay I, I quoted to you of Emerson, which you know, on, on friendship, which I love and was inspired to reread it by reading you, which is one of the great pleasures of reading: is that cross references come and you rediscover what you knew but forgot. I was reminded also of Montaigne's great essay on fo- friendship, where he talks about de la Boétie and he's asked, you know, he asks himself, but why this friendship? And he said, parce que c'était lui, parce que c'était moi, because it was him, because it was me. And that's the best mm. definition he could could come up with when speaking about friendship. But friendship, as you said, is, is a virtue. Um, it's a, a cardinal virtue. And the, the dictionary is wonderful because I, to my mind, the word agitate and apathy are perhaps the two most important words nearly in the dictionary. And you, you keep saying nearly in a utopian way What if, what if, what if, what if the world were different? What if our monuments had more to do with truly forgotten people, is one of your what ifs. And I'm curious if your intent was to perhaps give the readers the possibility of imagining a different world from which we might perhaps, though I'm doubtful, emerge when this pandemic too
1: I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, partly because I recently reread uh, Paradise Built in Hell by mm-hmm. Rebecca Solnit, which is a sort of study of five disasters of the 20th century, beginning with the earthquake in San Francisco and ending with Hurricane Katrina. And she argues, you know, among other things, that people are brilliant in a disaster, that it, that social Darwinism you know, they're not all scrambling for the boat or, or at the same time. They're actually all trying to help each other get to the boat. And that in times of, uh, of difficulty, that mutual aid as a concept is far more uh, common than, than mutual destruction, you know? And I, I feel like we live in a world in which a lot of our pop culture and a lot of the things that we sort of dump into our brainstem are kind of visions, of, of uh, dystopian visions. Um, and yet when we have the chance in times when society is leveled or paused, we often build utopian uh, methods of helping each other. And so rather than, than I think right into, in a linguistic sense dystopia, which is I think quite easy. And there's a voluptuous pleasure in it. Why not write into the utopian ideas about what, what, what life could be. And now under this pandemic and with the, events of last summer with the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed and the questions about policing and the pandemic that resurged and the wildfires, there's been a kind of constant leveling of what we consider is normal, what we consider time to feel like, or what we consider here to be and over there to be. So I, I hope that out of this, we can we can keep that utopian spirit of, of helping one, one another and redefining how society ought to work uh going um, and i think all these things happen in a, in very intimate scale ways obviously there's an election and there's always local elections but within that political sphere there's all of our intimate personal spheres and we're we're always redefining our values by the things we do within that space by how you treat other people in your bubble and how you you know who you lend a helping hand to on the street and, you know, basically what you spend your attention on, on doing. Um, and I, I, I feel very filled with hope out of this, you know? Um, and part of this is why when, when this book that Tracy and I worked on together and it's an original conception, it was letters. They're all letters from different places, like letters, like the, the letter from a Birmingham jail, you know, Martin Luther King's great letter. And, you know, he said in there, we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, and I think what if is a is a is a fundamental um phrase of mutuality you know because it's a question posed to to some that someone has to answer. What if this happens? you know what if this statue wasn't a confederate general? what if it, you know what if it was someone that ran a halfway house? It's never been remembered and i I think that is a spirit that surges to the fore during times of difficulty, and we need it more than ever now.
0: You wrote a beautiful essay on wonder in Orion magazine, a magazine I'm discovering more and more and loving more and more. And you say, this was the year I learned, among other things, that a certain privacy is crucial to real wonder. I wonder if you could further unpack that. It made me think of of Ferlinghetti's beautiful poem on wonder, but anyway,
1: oh God, I love, I love that you you reference Ferlinghetti's poems because I feel like he was so many things in his lifetime—a bookseller, a, a sort of crusader for 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 social justice—you know, publisher. Um, we often forget that he had seventy years of these wonderful poems, and he was a great channeler of wonder. Um, but he was always speaking of it in the in the intimate terms, in the personal terms, in the in in sensory terms. And I feel we have so many platforms now to turn our experiences into digestible commodities, you know, to, to, to channel them up, to chimney them and to share them uh, on platforms that are not owned by us, obviously, you know? Um, And I, I, I think there has to be to some degree of a resistance to that, you know, to, to holding moments of, of wonder close to us be- until we understand what they mean or sharing them with a more limited number of people. Um, because the, 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 ethics of sharing with one versus many are, are real, I think. Um, you know, if you take a letter meant for you, that is beautiful and intimate and personal and share it with many, um, you're essentially breaking a kind of contract to some degree, especially if it's during the lifetime of that person. And I, I you, you mentioned Barry Lopez earlier, and I, and he was a great writer of letters. And you know, that yeah. that phrase that you quoted from my piece is is true that he didn't feel like he was standing on on high, giving me advice, you know, grand in a grandiose terms or Polonius-like. <laughs> he was he was writing to me. You know he was he was thinking with me or towards me and it invited a kind of response that only our friendship could develop and I, I think um there are obviously times when we want or we should be going into the public's public square and addressing the many or as many as we can gather there but that shouldn't be the case for everything you know that a, that the that the acoustics of a thought have an ethics to it if that makes sense, um,
0: deeply, and, and, deep, deeply so. You, you know, in in your essay, you 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 have this line which I, which I adore again on Barry Lopez. But in a way, Barry's the thread here, and friendship is as well. But so many other things I think are coming up in 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 speaking about Barry because he was so capacious. You say he found a million ways to express his love of the world. I I, yeah. I I love I love that generosity. We began, we 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 began, John, with Barry Lopez and friendship and what it all meant and and loss loss of people who we believe are, are deeply wise on porches rather than perches. And you 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 said to me once that this year has been filled with ghosts and mourning and interested you are in the peculiar, you say, intimacy across species, the kind of friendship across species. And there's a line by Anatole France where he says, until one has loved an animal as part of one's soul, one's soul remains unawakened. And I know that you yourself lost your dog. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that in in the broader way in which loss affects our life.
1: Well, how we spend our time, how we spend our hours, and of course, I I lean on the word "spend" because it's in, it's injected into everything we do. You know that that time is a value system like money, but but how we spend our time is so meaningful, and and the way that we do that is often alongside something that that does not speak to us. You know that does not have a voice, but does communicate with us, and you know I. I think maybe six months, nine months of this pandemic, I I was walking a dog, um, like many other other people out there, and it was not it, it, my. The dog was my mother in law's dog, and she um, she walks very slowly. So while my partner and her walked behind, I was out ahead throwing the ball with Martha, a twelve year old Weimaraner uh, who is a rescue, um, and even though you know neither of us could say anything to the other. There was a, a kind of conversation happening over the, these these months. And, uh, you know, I, I've never felt such an intimate connection with another being, um, including people. Um, I knew exactly when she would want to stop or she would look to me and her face would say the equivalent of several hundred words. And, you know, I, I felt... In the moment, a, a kind of loss for the fact that, for the longest time, through the acquisition of language, we lost, we, we, we lost a whole other way of communicating with other species. Because now we're separated by, uh, from them by language, and I think in 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 the last year, uh, there's been a an intense pressure on us to to make sense, to make a kind of coherence out of what's happening, and it's impossible because it's it's too. It's, it's too big, it's too multifarious. And so one of the ways we often, I think, make sense of those too-big-to-understand moments is through touch and through holding each other. And, and an animal can do that better, uh, just as well, if not better, sometimes than a human. You know, and so lately, I've, after Martha Martha died, I've been reading a lot of pieces and poems and essays by people who are trying to speak across the, the, the human and the non human um, because we're, you know, we're only one of many species on this planet. We take up a lot of its resources, and all around us are these other living things and, and re- remainders of formerly living things, and they're, they're addressing us in ways that I think we, we still have to spend our time trying to learn how to listen to. You know, I, There's a poem by Louise Erdrich in The Love Issue of, of Freeman's, and it's from a, the perspective of a stone and it's it's a love poem.
0: Would you read it, it's, maybe?
1: Oh, it's, it's exquisite. I would love to. It's oh,
0: please do. Please do. And, I, you know, as I was hearing you talk about um, the non-linguistic way in which we express ourselves and the, the kind of essays and books you're reading now on this subject, I was thinking, I think I know one of the Freemans that will come out soon on that very subject. But in the meantime... Do read that poem please as we close.
1: Called Stone Love, and this is by Louise Erdrich. I spent a star age in flames, bolted to the black heavens, waiting for you. Light crept over the sill of the earth, a thousand upon ten thousand upon a hundred thousand years, but no light touched me. Deep and depthless time waiting for you. Fate flung me out, hauled me here. To love as a stone loves, waiting for you. Touch me, butterfly. Like you, I have no hands. Kiss me, rain. Like you, I have no mouth. Snow, sit heavily upon me. Like you, I can only wait. Come to me, dear, unenduring, little human animal. I have no voice, but your voice. Sing to me. Speak. Let the clouds fly over us. I have spent a star age in flames just to hold you
0: truly exquisite um it, it's a tremendous and i didn't know it until this very moment so i'm really grateful as i as i said john you're a seeker it brought back also a memory of of a, a wonderful essay again of barry lopez in his book called about this life which is called a passage of the hands where he talks about his very hands, looking at them. It's a beautiful, beautiful little essay. And also I was reminded of the wonderful French poet Francis Ponge, who wrote mm-hmm. all, all about stones, um mm-hmm. from the point of view of the stones. So there there's a lot to look forward to in, in a Freeman's, I think, soon. I hope at least. In any event Well the next
1: yeah, the next issue is on change, so I think we're Uh, You know, we're all living through it. Um, And I, I think we need each other to to survive it. So that's hopefully what, um, what good writing can do is, is, is give us something solid, whether it's a hand or And Francis Ponch has that great collection about soap, I think.
0: Yes about soap (laughs) and he has a great collection about about soap i'll I'll just in closing tell you a friend of mine was writing a dissertation a hundred years ago on francis ponge and he you know ponge always spoke about objects so beautifully and he managed to to contact him and was going to visit him in paris and he was just about to leave and he said he wrote he called ponge up and and Ponch said, I'm so sorry, Michael, I, I I just can't see you, I'm in the hospital now. And my friend said, Oh that's I'm so sorry about that and he said but tell me, um now in the hospital what what kind of poem he used to call them, poem would you would you write? And he said, I, I'm just thinking about writing a poem about a thermometer. <laughs> That's wonderful, John. That's wonderful. John, what a what a pleasure to talk to you, and I can't wait to to see what what Knopf does under under your your mentorship, as it were, and together with all the other wonderful editors working there. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I could continue for a very long time, and and thank you for your extraordinary. Uh, and wise output. I'm I'm really very grateful. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. Yeah, you too. Bye bye. Bye.
1: To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.